evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The 40-year high inflation rate is getting the attention of Senate Democrats. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says they're focused on finding solutions. We take a look at what they're saying. Voters in San Francisco have voted to remove three school board members from their positions. This comes after locals expressed frustration over the board's actions during the pandemic. Trucker blockades in Canada are dispersing and demonstrators in Ottawa are being threatened with arrest. But the Freedom Convoy leaders are calling for backup. Texas is the first state to kick off early voting for the midterm primaries. This is the first major election since their new voting integrity bill was passed and thousands of mail-in ballots have already been rejected. And a young girl reported missing for more than two years has been found. Officers in upstate New York discovered her hidden under a staircase. In Washington, D.C., all hands are on deck to address inflation. The Federal Reserve, the White House and Congress are now contemplating solutions. The 40-year high rate is getting the attention of Senate Democrats, but what are they going to do to lower costs? NTD's Melina Wisecup reports. All signs show that elevated inflation rates are not going away anytime soon. Wholesale prices spiked nearly 10% in January. These challenges demand action, and Democrats remain laser-focused on lowering costs. Democrats made a very noticeable pivot yesterday. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, in the, starting with Senator Schumer's floor remarks, but throughout the day, all of a sudden they're starting to talk about inflation. The Federal Reserve plans to raise interest rates if inflation doesn't cool off. That'll make everyone pay more in interest on loans, with the goal to reduce the amount of money circulating in the economy. About six months late, but they're doing it, so maybe they're doing what they can do to get it under control. So what ideas have Democrats brought to the table so far? One is a gas tax. That means pushing the pause button on the federal tax charged on gasoline. But friends of mine call me that tell me they don't want to come into city no more because the gas is the gas prices are through the roof. So I'm not going out to see friends as often. I'm not going out to concerts. President Biden this week telling the American people he understands the urgency of lowering inflation. Again, pitching his Build Back Better bill as the best possible solution. And if you're in a working class family, it hurts. That's why my Build Back Better plan, what it's all about, look, families are getting clobbered. While that bill is still stalled, Democrats are now looking at breaking it up into pieces to see what, from the nearly $2 trillion bill, can pass in the gridlocked Senate. Democrats say the bill will ease inflation burdens on working Americans by lowering prescription drug costs and the cost of child care. But Republicans are skeptical. They, for example, proposed doubling the cost of child care and then subsidizing the doubled cost of child care. It's absolutely preposterous. And Senator Schumer is expressing disappointment that Republicans have not brought solutions of their own to the table. But Democrats are the ones laser focused on showing where we stand and offering solutions that aim squarely at the problem. Republicans seem to have no solutions, just rhetoric. 
We can expect Congress to be taking action to address this over the next few weeks. Senate Leader Schumer says we can expect a lot of floor activity on this issue come March. March is also when the Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates in a bid to lower inflation. Now, the Republican senators that we heard from today say, say they're happy that the administration is taking action on this. They just wish they didn't have to rely on the Federal Reserve to do so. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. San Franciscans recalled three of the city's school board members on Tuesday night. The recall came after parents' frustration with members refusing to reopen schools during pandemic lockdowns. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. The votes are in and three San Francisco school board members are out. San Francisco voters overwhelmingly voted to recall Allison Collins, Gabriela Lopez and Fauga Moliga on Tuesday evening. The vote comes with the frustration locals had towards the board members' strict rules and frivolous activities during lockdowns. Board President Lopez, Vice President Moliga, and Member Collins were ousted with at least 72% of the votes against each one of them. Last night during the race, uh, the voters sent a clear message, a clear message as it relates to the school board. They want to focus to be on the fundamental responsibility of the school district. San Francisco Mayor London Breed clashed with the schools over reopening and later supported the recall. Siva Raj, one of the leaders of the recall campaign, said the drive was the board's deprioritized reopening. He told NTD's sister media, The Epic Times, the board was more focused on politics and really not about anything to do with educating our kids. I mean, it, you know, these people work really hard. This was a, a very grassroots effort, and I think that um, people should have the ability, if they have a concern with any elected leader, um, they should have the right to take a recall effort to the ballot. Other organizers said they wanted all seven members replaced, but only three had served long enough to face a recall. The three supported keeping classrooms closed and kept children in virtual learning until August 2021. Instead of moving to open schools, the three spent time on renaming school buildings, such as renaming schools named after George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. They were later criticized for inaccurate research and ignoring students' struggles with online learning in early 2021. Asian-American parents became particularly active in the effort after the board attempted to end merit-based admissions to a prestigious local high school. Asians make up the majority of the high school's student body. Despite a general election being scheduled for later this year, Breed said in a statement that voters have delivered a clear message. Now that the three school board members are out, Breed will choose their replacements. David Lamb, NTD News, San Francisco. Philadelphia is dropping its vaccine passport system for indoor dining. The requirement went into effect in January and ends today. The city's health commissioner says they dropped the mandate because virus cases are dropping. But if cases spike in the future, authorities can still re-implement the vaccine passport. Officials say they will use a four-tiered system to, to potentially implement future mandates in case new variants emerge. It will depend on how severe the outbreak is. Philadelphia's indoor mask mandate remains in place. Several cities, including New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles and Boston, still have a vaccine passport system in place. 
And Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing the Biden administration for requiring masks on public transit and at transportation hubs. He filed a lawsuit today against the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services. Paxton says the mandate is illegal and not authorized by Congress. The Biden administration initiated the mask mandate in February 2021. It's set to expire on March 18th, but the CDC has extended it several times before. The mandate requires everyone older than two years old to wear a mask on airplanes, ships, trains, subways, buses, taxis, and ride shares. It's also mandatory at transportation hubs such as airports, bus terminals, train stations, and seaports. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says the agency is considering new COVID-19 guidance, including wearing face masks. A decision could come out later this month or in early March. There's also pushback against mask mandates in California. Residents, parents, and students alike were rallying at school district offices in Southern California Tuesday. It's part of a statewide effort to protest mask mandates. NTD spoke to some of them in San Bernardino County. Students and parents rallied at the Chino Valley Unified School District, saying they are fed up with being forced to wear masks. We don't want to wear a mask eight hours a day, and we respect anyone who does and who has that decision, but we should be allowed to make that decision for ourselves. The rally was organized by Parent Advocacy for Chino Valley USD, which was created last May. We found out that our district had taken some funds from the government, and in exchange of that, they had to be compliant with a lot of things that they're holding to our kids, um, like the masking and potentially the mandated vaccines, and that's where we started getting involved, and we just hit the ground running. We just said, no, you're not going to get away with this without us fighting back for our children. Students say they have been discriminated against and are falling behind because they are refused education. They put a rule in place that if you were to walk into class and you said you don't want to wear a mask, they had to kick you out and refuse education. I've refused tests, I've refused to take homework, and I've been kicked out of class and told that I'm horrible for not wearing a mask, I'm killing off people. They've had students in school who wear the mask, write essays against me and against the many other students who are sitting out. It's called the COVID jerk, it's an essay. And so I just, we need to get rid of the discrimination against masks and these mandates. It's not okay, you're putting masks on little children and it's horrible. They do post our work online and they try their best, but some teachers don't. Some teachers will withhold work from you or will make you go to the class just to get your work, and that's not fair. So then we get caught behind just because we don't want to wear a mask or just because they won't let us in their classroom. The group is educating parents, letting them know that they can submit forms of formal complaints to the school district so their voices can be heard. Because board meetings, things like that, they just ignore us, so this is a way that we can legally bind them to listen to our children. It's not necessary for them because it's more uh, harmful than helpful at this point. The kids, uh, I asked Cassie the other day, why do the kids want to wear their mask? And she said because they don't want to show their faces. That is, uh, that's harmful. It's not normal. It's not natural. And it's time for the kids to show who they are and be who they are and to be heard. But parents should have that right. All these rights are being taken away from all these people in this country, let alone this district. So all of this needs to go, and the kids are seeing it. And then there's discrimination within the schools. The kids are fighting with kids because one believes one way and another one believes another one. So it's dividing the kids, it's dividing the parents, it's dividing everyone, and it's just making everything 10 times worse. They plan to go to the teachers' union next. The group has been working to replace the school board members with those who they say will be dedicated to protecting the children. 
The Canadian Prime Minister is coming down on the trucker convoy, invoking his emergency powers to dismantle the blockades. But convoy leaders in Ottawa aren't backing off. They're calling for backup. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. Outside Ottawa's Parliament building, officers are warning truckers, saying they may be arrested and stripped of their licenses if they don't leave. A copy of the notice obtained by NTD News says anyone blocking streets or assisting others in the blocking streets are committing a criminal offense and you may be arrested. The Federal Emergencies Act allows for the regulation or prohibition of travel to, from, or within any specified area. That Emergencies Act was invoked by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The blockades along the U.S.-Canada border have cleared up. But leaders of the over three-week-long demonstration in Ottawa haven't backed down. We call on our fellow Canadians to come to Ottawa to exercise their legal right of assembly and protest. That's Daniel Bulford, a Freedom Convoy volunteer. He says that Trudeau's Emergencies Act cannot be used to quash peaceful demonstrations. The order says in part that the government can prohibit any public assembly that may reasonably be expected to lead to a breach of the peace. The more Canadians that come to Ottawa will make it harder for the government to get the police to follow their illegal order. The convoy is conducting a lawful protest. We recognize there is a democratic process under which change occurs. And we have no intention of acting outside the realm of this democratic process. We continue to ask for nothing more than the restoration of our rights and freedoms with respect to mandate and vaccine passports. Most of the protests have been peaceful, but some arrests have been made at different protest sites. According to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, known as the RCMP, 13 people were arrested this week at the U.S.-Canada-Coutts border. They were charged with various crimes, including conspiracy to commit murder and possession of dangerous weapons for dangerous purposes. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. The crowdfunding website used by the trucker convoy is up and running again. Give Send Go says malicious actors attacked their website on Sunday. A public statement by the company says that one such actor illegally hacked into the company's database and distributed the names and emails of people who donated to the Freedom Convoy. Give Send Go says credit card information was not leaked and that no money was stolen. The Convoy campaign has raised over $9 million. Give Send Go co-founder Jacob Wells told Fox Business that around 50% of the donations are made by U.S. donors. But another way, donations between Canada and the U.S. are roughly split in half. And early voting in the midterm primaries officially began in Texas this week. And thousands of mail-in ballots have already been rejected. This is the first major election in Texas since Governor Abbott signed the Election Integrity Bill into law in September. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. In expanding early voting hours across the state, when the new election integrity bill came before the Texas legislature this past summer, a group of Texas House Democrats fled to Washington, D.C. in an attempt to prevent the bill from being voted on. But the bill was later passed, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law this past summer. So far, as early voting has begun in the Texas midterm primaries, thousands of mail-in ballots have already been rejected. 
Under the new voting law, absentee voters are now required to provide either their driver's license numbers or the last four of their social security numbers on mail-in ballots. While Texas Republicans have said this move will ensure voter integrity, opponents say the law discriminates against people of color. On the other hand, 80% of Americans support showing an ID to vote, according to a Monmouth poll. This year's elections in Texas have major races, including U.S. congressional seats and the next Texas governor. Incumbent Governor Greg Abbott is seeking his third term and is endorsed by former President Trump. Alan West, a former Republican U.S. congressman, is among others running for the gubernatorial seat. And the leading Democratic candidate for Texas governor is Beto O'Rourke. One of the main concerns for Texas voters is the crisis at the southern border, where the Texas National Guard has been deployed, and where Texas continues to see record numbers of illegal immigrant apprehensions. Election day in Texas will be on March 1st. And under Texas law, if no candidate earns a majority of the vote in any given election, the top two finishers will have a runoff on May 24th. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. At least 10 states are proposing bills that would tighten voter ID requirements. More than 40 bills are up for consideration, including 13 in Missouri and 11 in Virginia. This is according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. And bird flu has been detected in flocks of birds in Kentucky, Virginia and Indiana. Close to 30,000 turkeys have already been killed to prevent the flu from spreading. But the Agriculture Department says there are no human cases as of now. NTD's Allison Lee has more. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, says that thousands of commercial turkeys at a turkey farm in Dubois County, Indiana, became sick with bird flu on February 8th. It involved the highly transmissible H5N1 virus. 29,000 turkeys in the flock were killed to prevent the spread of the virus. A second flock of over 26,000 turkeys from near the farm are undergoing testing. On February 12th, bird flu was also detected on a flock of commercial broiler chickens in Fulton County, Kentucky, and a backyard flock of mixed species birds in Fauquier County, Virginia. The USDA is waiting for results of another potential case in Webster County, Kentucky. Kentucky officials say the outbreak in Fulton County also involved the H5N1 virus. It's not clear if that applies to the outbreak in Virginia, but officials say the birds will be killed. The Agriculture Department cites the CDC, saying that these avian influenza detections do not present an immediate public health concern. They say there are no human cases, but the agency is still calling on farm workers to handle livestock properly. In 2015, a widespread bird flu outbreak killed 50 million birds across 15 states and cost the federal government nearly $1 billion. Allison Lee, NTD News. The family of the late actor Bob Saget filed a lawsuit against authorities in Florida yesterday. They're trying to stop authorities from releasing records related to Saget's death. The family seeks an injunction declaring that certain records remain confidential and exempt from public disclosure. Those records include photos, video and audio recordings, and autopsy information created during the investigation into Saget's death. The lawsuit says the family would suffer extreme mental pain, anguish, and emotional distress if the information was released. Saget died in his hotel room last month in Orlando, Florida. A medical examiner's report said he had COVID-19, but concluded that he died from an accidental head trauma. 
And this week, a young girl reported missing for more than two years has been found. Officers in upstate New York discovered her hidden under a staircase. NTD's Chenny Wu tells us more. Paisley Schultes, a six-year-old girl who was reported missing in 2019, was found Monday night in a Saugerties upstate New York home. This is about 130 miles east of Cayuga Heights, where she was last seen more than two years ago, when she was four years old. Paisley had been abducted by her biological parents, who had lost custody of her and her sister in 2019. They kept her in her paternal grandfather's house. When Paisley first went missing, police said they suspected she had been abducted by her non-custodial parents, but years of searching her parents' home had been unsuccessful. Local police obtained a search warrant Monday after receiving a tip that the child was in the area. According to the Socrates Police Department, an hour into the search, one detective noticed the steps leading to the basement were oddly constructed. The detective pointed a flashlight through a crack in the wooden steps and saw what seemed to be a blanket. The officers then ripped off several of the steps and found the girl and her biological mother, Kimberly Cooper Schultes, in the enclosure. The biological mother, father, and grandfather have been arrested. Chenny Wu, NTD News, New York. New York City has the largest municipal budget in the U.S. Today, Mayor Eric Adams announces the preliminary plan for the next fiscal year, including record-breaking savings. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. New York City is increasing its budget reserve to over $6 billion. That's the largest reserve in the city's history. The mayor says that record was made possible because the city cut spending by almost $2 billion. Cautious fiscal planning includes setting aside funds that serve as a hedge against the unexpected. The city also brought in $1.5 billion more in tax revenue than expected. With this preliminary budget, we have taken the first important steps to turn our city around. But not everything about this year's budget is positive. New York City only recovered 55% of the jobs lost during the pandemic. This lags behind the state, which has recovered 63%, with the U.S. at 84%. And the trend of working from home is leading to problems. Office vacancy rates are at a 20%, a 40-year high. This represents more than 83 million square feet of space. Working from home has a chain effect in the city's economic environment. So that people can understand, if you are an accountant and you're staying home and it impacts that local diner, that local restaurant, it's going to, it's going to impact you. Eventually, you're going to lose your clients. Because if our restaurants close, if our small businesses close, who's going to give you the business? Over the next four years, the city is planning to spend $100 billion. Most of that money will go to government operations and infrastructure. The budget released today is only preliminary, so we can't say yet how much money each agency is getting. But the mayor did say that the police force budget will slightly decrease. Adam says he will first test out having more NYPD members patrol the streets before considering an increase to their budget. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Coming up, the triple axel, the quad toe loop, how these figure skaters can pull off these dizzying routines while somehow staying balanced.
and a parade for the Super Bowl champions. The Rams have the Lombardi Trophy in hand and fans are celebrating in downtown LA. We'll have more soon here on NTD News. Figure skating has been a staple of the Winter Olympics for nearly a century. With its triple axle jumps and endless spins, balance is key for any performer. But how do these athletes perform so well without getting dizzy? NTD's Dave Martin has more. This is Sheila Thielen, a master-rated figure skating coach who's been in the business for more than 30 years. Sheila's Vestibular Training Services, a product that helps figure skaters as well as the general public improve their balance, something key to any skater looking to land their jumps. It's part of the landing, but it's also the part of going on in the, the programs. While the triple axel and the quad jump are the highlights of any program, figure skaters sprinkle in sitting spins, upright spins, and camel spins. All that spinning, yet somehow they don't get dizzy. Right. It's even, even the footwork sequence, you know, even the footwork sequence that, that they're turning left, they're turning right, and they're, and they're moving with their body or they're counteracting the movement. It's, it's so much turning, and, and the whole sport's based on it. The spins can reach whirlwind speeds of more than 300 rotations per minute. The training to get to that level is often long and arduous. It's not just you just spun with your head behind your butt. <laughs> Nine revolutions, then you pulled your foot up over your head and you did all these movements. And then you come out 23 turns later and you step forward and you take off into the rest of your program and you know where you are. You're not spatially disoriented. You know where you are, and you're ready to move on to the next thing immediately. That's training. That's so hard. Like, it's so hard, people don't even realize it. Sheila's training service includes a jumping harness that goes around the body so you can lift and spin the athlete, really spin them. But as they train more and more, the dizziness goes away because we've really trained that cognitive speed and that eye training speed. So. With that, they really aren't dizzy. The product is even used by Mexican Olympic figure skating sensation Donovan Carrillo, who placed 22nd in the men's single skating competition last week and ended Mexico's 30-year Olympic absence in the competition. Dave Martin, NTD News. The Los Angeles Rams won their first Super Bowl in more than 20 years Sunday night with a 23-20 win over Cincinnati. Though the partying started immediately after the game, Today, the city officially celebrated on the streets. NTD's Dave Martin has more. LA Rams stars Matt Stafford, Cooper Cup, and Aaron Donald celebrated their Super Bowl championship with a victory parade Wednesday in front of thousands of fans. Players were riding high in double-decker buses holding the Lombardi Trophy. Fans dressed in Rams attire came from all over the area to cheer their team. Sean McVay's squad came from behind in the fourth quarter Sunday to win a thriller 23-20 over the Cincinnati Bengals, and L.A. has been celebrating ever since. L.A. loves you, right? Number one in this house. Our house. Whose house? Our house. The Rams are the third L.A. sports team to win titles in the last two years, though the Dodgers and Lakers didn't get a victory parade because of COVID. L.A. wasn't necessarily expected to win a Super Bowl this year in the league with Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes, but after beating Arizona soundly in the first round of the playoffs, they won their last three games by three points apiece. It was a rough road, but they, they came through. The Rams loaded up with stars Matt Stafford, Jalen Ramsey, and Vaughn Miller by trading a number of future draft picks in recent years. The move paid off as the team won their first Super Bowl since 1999. Dave Martin, NTD News. 
coming up, Hong Kong is struggling with the latest wave of COVID-19 infections. Daily cases surged over the past two weeks, leaving hospitals short of beds and struggling to cope. And is China living up to its trade commitments? We bring you details of the Biden administration's first assessment of China's compliance with the World Trade Organization. That's when we return with NTD News. Another top CNN executive has resigned as a result of the investigation into the tenure of former anchor Chris Cuomo. Allison Gallist, who served as the network's top communications executive, resigned Tuesday night. She, Cuomo, and former CNN president Jeff Zucker are accused of standards violations. And Cuomo is saying that this shows that Zucker's resignation was never about his undisclosed relationship with Gallist. Right on the heels of Jeff Zucker's resignation as president of CNN, his former lieutenant, Alison Gollust, is also leaving the company. Warner Media CEO Jason Kylar broke the news of Gollust's resignation to staffers Tuesday evening. In a memo, Kyla said Gullis resigned following the conclusion of an investigation into issues associated with former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo and his brother, former New York governor Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo was fired in December for a breach of ethics after it was discovered he had been helping his brother as he faced accusations of sexual harassment. Kyla wrote that based on over 40 interviews and a review of over 100,000 texts and emails, the investigation found violations of company policies, including CNN's new standards and practices by Zucker, Gallust and Cuomo. According to CNN, Gallust released a comment addressing her exit Tuesday night. She called Warner Media's statement an attempt to retaliate against her and changed the media narrative in the wake of their disastrous handling of the last two weeks. Zucker announced his resignation from CNN on February 2nd, citing his failure to disclose his romantic relationship with Gullust. The pair were questioned about their relationship amid a probe into Cuomo's tenure. But there's been much speculation that there could be more to Zucker's resignation than he and the company let on. CNN's chief media correspondent, Brian Stelter, had this to say about the Cuomo connection to Zucker's resignation. Cuomo was fired in December, and he is not going out quietly. He was fired, and there were reports that he wasn't going to get paid the millions of dollars that were going to be on the remainder of his contract. So as a source uh, said to me earlier today, he was trying to burn the place down. He was going to court, trying to burn the place down, and claiming that he had incriminating information about Zucker and Gullist. Stelter said if that is the case, then the Cuomo scandal has created a remarkable domino effect. Following the news of Gullis' resignation, Cuomo's spokesman said Tuesday night that it is clear this was never about an undisclosed relationship. He wrote, As Mr. Cuomo has stated previously, Mr. Zucker and Ms. Gullist were not only entirely aware, but fully supportive of what he was doing to help his brother. There has been speculation over Gullah's involvement due to her connection to the former governor. She served as his communications director for four months in 2012, before leaving to join CNN. But in a statement to the New York Times, Zucker's spokesman rejected Cuomo's claims, saying, Jeff was never aware of the full extent of what Chris Cuomo was doing for his brother, which is why Chris was fired. Cuomo's spokesman is questioning when Warner Media will release the results of its investigation. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York.
The latest wave of COVID-19 infections has overwhelmed Hong Kong, according to city officials. That's as daily cases surged over the past two weeks, leaving hospitals short of beds and struggling to cope. Here are the details. Health authorities in Hong Kong reported a record 4,285 confirmed new infections on Wednesday, more than 40 times the level at the start of February. The city also reported another 7,000 preliminary positive cases. Authorities added that nine people have died from the virus in the last 24 hours, including a three-year-old girl. Dozens of COVID-19 patients were being treated in makeshift open-air spaces outside medical centers on Wednesday, with several hospitals operating at over 100 percent capacity. According to pro-Beijing newspapers, Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping has told Hong Kong officials that their overriding mission was to stabilize and control a worsening outbreak. Hong Kong has adopted the same dynamic zero COVID strategy employed by mainland China to suppress all outbreaks. But the speed of the spread of the highly contagious Omicron variant has left authorities floundering. Four people returning to China from Hong Kong have tested positive for the virus and been placed in quarantine on Wednesday. That's according to authorities in Guangzhou and Chenzhou. Mainland China has reported only 994 new cases and zero deaths since the beginning of February. But the Chinese Communist regime has frequently been accused of underreporting numbers throughout the pandemic. The Biden administration today released its first assessment of China's compliance with the rules of the World Trade Organization. Did China live up to the promises it made to get into foreign markets in the first place? And what about more recent promises? NTD's Iris Tao has more. China has violated commitments it made both 20 years ago and recently. In a new report released Wednesday, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative details how China has failed to deliver on a wide array of trade commitments, including ones it made in 2001 to first open up its markets to the West and others under the 2020 trade deal. Uh, made clear that the phase one deal did not address the core problems with China's state-led economy and harmful economic practices. Uh, USTR, since that period of time, has been making a concerted effort to see if China will show serious intent to make good on their purchase commitments. But the fact that they have not met those uh, illustrates the limitations of the framework we inherited. The criticism comes as the U.S. releases its annual report on China's compliance with WTO rules, the first such report under Biden. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai says China flouted free market principles and instead expanded a state-led approach, causing harm to workers and businesses around the world. The U.S. has repeatedly called for China to keep its promises. Here's Tai back in October. For too long, China's lack of adherence to global trading norms has undercut the prosperity of Americans and others around the world. In recent years, Beijing has doubled down on its state-centered economic system. Despite the calls, the latest data shows China ended up buying only about half of the U.S. products it had promised to buy. And House Republicans are now urging Biden to take immediate action. Sixty of them sent a letter on Tuesday asking Biden to address China's $16 billion shortfalls in agricultural purchases. They are warning that a lack of enforcement action will set a precedent that will be detrimental for future trade negotiations. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Coming up, as Western powers warn of an imminent invasion of Ukraine, a former French general offers a different take on Russia's intentions.
And Austria will lift most of its remaining COVID-19 restrictions by March 5th, including proof of vaccination to enter public venues. The announcement comes less than two weeks after vaccines became a legal requirement for all adults there. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Ukrainians raised national flags and played the country's anthem today to show unity against fear of a Russian invasion that Western powers have said could be imminent. Ukraine's president called 16th of February a day of a unity. He called Ukrainians to return to the country to stay side by side with Ukrainian army, people and diplomacy. Numerous Western media outlets suggested that February 16th could be the date of a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. In response, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, suggested that on February 16th, the people of Ukraine could celebrate a new national holiday, the Day of Unity. A huge 200-meter-long Ukrainian flag was unfurled at the Olympijsky National Sports Complex in Kiev. About 1,000 participants walked in a circle along the field, holding the yellow-blue flag and singing Ukraine's national anthem. Everything about our symbols always evokes in me feelings of respect, respect and pleasant emotions. We saw what sincere smiles people have, despite all the circumstances in the country. Today we saw that Ukrainians are one nation, one people, and we know how to unite. We want to show the world our unity, that we are not afraid of anything. We love our country and we are united in everything we do. We love our country so much and will always protect it. I want to live here peacefully, happily, for a very long time. President Zelensky called on Ukrainians to take a photo or video with the flag of Ukraine on the Day of Unity and to share it on social media. In the meantime, the Russian Federation is insisting that NATO announce its refusal to admit Ukraine to the alliance. This was stated by Konstantin Gavrilov, who was the head of the Russian delegation to the negotiations on military security and arms control in Vienna. On February 16th, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said that NATO's doors remain open to Ukraine. According to him, the alliance will not compromise on key principles. He says that Russia does not decide who will or will not be a member of NATO. And the French President Emmanuel Macron said he believes that through diplomacy, the West can prevent a military conflict in Ukraine. Macron met Russian President Putin last week. Unlike some Western allies, France has not yet pulled its diplomats from Kiev. Despite the threat of Russia invading Ukraine, France did not advise its citizens to leave the country, but rather to buy food and other supplies. And unlike the UK, the US and other countries, the French government has not evacuated their diplomats from Kiev. This is though France's government seemed to share a similar assessment of the situation. On Tuesday, the French foreign minister said an invasion of Ukraine is a possibility. Le Drian also said Putin has been blowing hot and cold on invading Ukraine. Last week, French President Emmanuel Macron met with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Macron said he was seeking a useful response to avoid war and build trust. 
French General Bertrand Soubelet, a retired operations commander for the Gendarmerie forces, says it's important to understand Putin's objectives. I believe the crisis in Ukraine is an emblematic crisis. It is emblematic of the relationship we've had with Russia for years. What is Vladimir Putin's objective, his goal? It is a greater Russia. That is his goal. He doesn't think he's the Tsar, but almost. Subole says the crisis is like arm wrestling with the West, especially NATO, rather than about an intention to invade Ukraine. Ukraine's plan to become a member of NATO does not necessarily suit Putin. So he's taking all the measures and making all the claims on the border of Ukraine to influence the decisions that will be taken on Ukraine. I don't think he ever intended to invade Ukraine, but he's put pressure on to get what he wants. He also says recent military interventions by French forces in Africa in the war against terrorism taught France a lesson. Forcing a regime change does not bring good result. That's why using diplomacy is the better option. Putin is not a great Democrat, but he has the support of the vast majority of his population. He's the head of state. He has been elected. And we have to respect that. Not only do we have to respect that, we have to speak with him. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Austria will lift most of its remaining COVID-19 restrictions by March 5th, the country's chancellor announced today. People will no longer need to show proof of vaccination or recent recovery to enter most public venues. Just two weeks ago, Austria made vaccines mandatory for all adults, making it the first country in Europe to pass such a law. Austrian Chancellor Karl Niehammer made the announcement Wednesday to end most of the country's COVID-19 restrictions on March 5th. Officials stressed that the pandemic is not yet over, but a stabilization of new infections allows Austria to open up step by step. Starting on Saturday, proof of vaccination or recent recovery will no longer be required to attend events, go to restaurants, bars or hairdressers and various other activities. Also, bars and restaurants will no longer need to close earlier, at midnight, and nightclubs will be allowed to reopen. But people will still have to wear masks in places wherever it is absolutely necessary to protect vulnerable groups, including public transport, essential shops and pharmacies. Proof of at least a negative test will continue to be required for staff and visitors at hospitals and nursing homes. Requirements to enter Austria will also be relaxed. The move marks a drastic shift in the country's pandemic measures, which up until now have been some of the strictest in Europe. Austria recently became the first European country to make it illegal for adults to be unvaccinated. Other European countries that have eased restrictions include Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland and Germany. Last month, the U.K. also dropped mask mandates and COVID passports. Coming up, an exhibition in London focuses on the life of Beatrix Potter, author of the beloved children's book, The Tale of Peter Rabbit. And an ongoing drought across Spain revealed a ghost village that's been submerged underwater for 30 years. And now it's drawing crowds of tourists. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. The Tale of Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter. 
Now a comprehensive exhibition is opening in London, taking a detailed journey through her life from author to conservationist. MTV's Neil Woodrow attends the opening. The V&A and National Trust have come together to present this V&A exhibition, Drawn to Nature, the first exhibition to tell the complete story of one of the 20th century's best-loved children's authors, Beatrix Potter. The exhibition opens during the 120th anniversary of Potter's best-loved book, The Tale of Peter Rabbit. She was born in 1866. Her ancestors hail from Lancashire, but for the first 47 years, she resided a mere mile away from this very museum in South Kensington. Here, a young Beatrix looks out from the dining room window of their home in Bolton Gardens. The V&A used to be called the South Kensington Museum in Potter's Day, which she was known to visit. A curator from the National Trust, Helen Antrobus, says the exhibition takes a look beyond the beloved characters of Peter Rabbit and Jemima Puddleduck. By combining the two collections of the V&A and the National Trust, we're able to put equal emphasis on her three major achievements in natural science, land conservation and of course storybook publishing. And the first two I think will be very unexpected to visitors. It includes over 200 personal objects such as artworks, barely seen letters, sketches, coded diaries and family photographs revealing more about Potter's personality. The wonderful thing about, about Beatrix Potter I think is that she is so multifaceted and complex and through her diaries and her letters that we have on display here we're able to see her inner thoughts, her humour, she's very funny, she's very dry and she's very passionate about the interests that she fosters. Potter began drawing at an early age, this sketch from when she was nine. Across four sections, the exhibition follows Potter's journey from London to the Lake District, where she eventually settled. A section of the exhibition called Under the Microscope highlights Potter's interest in natural science. From her late teens, she developed a passion for mycology, the study of fungi. But Potter is best known for her intriguing stories for children. Not only does she copy the meticulous details of the animals in her books, but she creates wonderful worlds for them to exist in. And we can see inspirations from nonsense literature, like, you know, The Owl and the Pussycat features quite heavily. We can see inspiration from people she meets, from acquaintances, from objects. And so I think through that she builds a world that children will be delighted by. The final part of the exhibition covers her permanent move to become an award-winning sheep farmer and respected member of the local community. Beatrix Potter spent the last 30 years of her life buying and protecting land in the Lake District. She eventually left a bequest of over 4,000 acres of land, farms and cottages to the National Trust. Yeah, I mean, Beatrix described the National Trust as a noble and immortal thing, and I think she really trusted this organisation to continue her legacy. And their work together was a partnership. They, um, you know, she would purchase land specifically to give to the National Trust, for example, Troutbeck Park and uh, Mont Coniston Estate. And I think she would be very proud of what the organisation have continued to do today with her legacy. Younger children will enjoy the visit here with interactive elements, including audiobooks, a larger-than-life hiding place in Mr. McGregor's garden, and a dressing-up corner inspired by Mrs. Tiggywinkle. The V&A exhibition has brought to life Beatrix Potter, the natural storyteller. It runs until January next year. Neil Woodrow, NTD News, London.
An ongoing drought across Spain in recent months has caused reservoir water levels to drop significantly. A ghost village that had been submerged underwater in the Spanish Galicia region for 30 years is now drawing crowds of tourists. Local authorities say nearby Portuguese power utilities have been aggressively exploiting the reservoir for electricity production and irrigation. NTD's Joanne Robson brings us this report. Drone footage shows a ghost village emerge from a nearly empty dam on the Spanish-Portuguese border. Its eerie grey ruins are drawing in crowds of tourists. It's impressive to see it like this. It is rare to be able to enjoy this scene, and this is why we came to take pictures. The Alto Lindoso Reservoir, now at 15% of its capacity, reveals details of a life frozen 30 years ago in 1992 when the Atharedo village in Spain's northwestern Galicia region was flooded. The local mayor says the situation is due to a lack of rain in recent months. With the scarce rain, above all in January, the water level has fallen a lot. Also, we cannot ignore that there has also been, let's say, quite aggressive exploitation by EDP, which is the power company that manages this reservoir. At the start of the month, Portugal's government ordered six dams, including Alto Lindoso, to almost completely halt water use for electricity production and irrigation due to the worsening drought. Questions over the sustainability of reservoirs are not new. Last year, several Spanish villagers complained about how power companies used them after a rapid drawdown from a lake in western Spain. The company said it was following the rules. Environment Ministry data over the last decade shows Spain's reservoirs' levels are well below the average, but still above levels registered in a 2018 drought. A ministry source said drought indicators showed a potential worsening in the coming weeks, but did not yet detect a generalised problem throughout the country. Joanne Robson, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.